2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 2. And if you're able to do so, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's word today. Give ear to God's word. Paul writes, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands uh, forever. Amen. Well, we've, we've spent at least a couple Sundays looking at the end, uh, at those last two verses of chapter 3. Uh, and uh, there we find, I think we've said it a couple times now, um, some of the most important foundational truths in Scripture about Scripture. And the main thing there is what Paul says in verse 16 when he says all Scripture is... The, the ESV puts it like this, all scripture is breathed out by God. And what, what does that mean? It's a strange word picture that Paul uses there. But at the end of the day, what it means is all the scripture, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, all the scripture is the word of God. If you have trouble understanding what he means by breathed out, that's really what he's saying. All scripture is God himself speaking. That is the main Point. And when you say that the scripture is the word of God, that it's inspired, there's a number of things that that uh, implies as well and teaches. That means the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, if they are the very word of God, and we say that they are according to scripture, that means they are, we, we say the words, inerrant. If they are inspired by God, they are inerrant, they are infallible, they are authoritative, and they are sufficient for that which God has given it to us uh, four. So to say that God's word is inerrant, what does that mean? It means there are no errors, there are no mistakes, there are no untruths or even half-truths in the Bible. To say that God's word is infallible is to say that it will never steer you wrong. When you walk by faith in the word of God, you will always find the, the will of God to be, as Paul says in Romans 12:2, good and acceptable and perfect. You will not regret having followed God's word. Psalm 1 teaches us that if we delight in and meditate upon and walk in accordance with the law of God, verses 1 and 2, we will bear fruit unto holiness and even prosper in the Lord. Verse 3, God's word by definition is authoritative. And, and how could it not be so? And why, why is it authoritative? Because it's the word of Whose word is it? The Lord. What he says goes. God's word is our only rule, we say, for faith and practice. It is the scriptures alone of the Old and New Testament that settles all debates and questions about what we are to believe and how we are to live. To say the word of God is sufficient is to say that it's living and active, as Hebrews 4.12 says. It never, never returns void. Isaiah 55, 11, but always does what? It always accomplishes what God has sent it forth to do. It never fails in that which God has sent it for uh, to accomplish. It, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, which is found where? 
in the scriptures alone that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Romans 1 verse 16. And as Jesus tells us in John 17, 17, it's by the truth that we as believers are sanctified. And he says to God and his father, your word is truth. How are you sanctified as a believer? By the scriptures and the Holy Spirit working through it. Now, having said all those things and kind of repeated them from previous weeks a little bit for review, Paul doesn't just tell Timothy these things about scripture in a vacuum, does he? Sometimes we treat the epistles of Paul or Peter or John or other passages in the Bible, other books of the Bible, almost as if, uh, not to say that Proverbs doesn't have any kind of organization to it or you know, uh, arrangement to it, but we sometimes treat verses of the Bible elsewhere as if they were, I won't say bulletproof, but bullet points, right? That if you want to think, if I say, you know, Bible quiz time, um, where's the love chapter in the Bible? There's nothing wrong with saying that. And you'll say 1 Corinthians 13. If I say, where's the chapter in the Bible or one of the chapters in the Bible that talks about God's sovereign grace and election? You might say Romans chapter 9, read Romans 9. You know, we, we talk in, about things that way and that's fine. But it's wrong if we think by saying those things that, that God just kind of puts a verse here, a verse there, and we are to focus on these things without looking at the context uh, around it. It's one of the reasons I think that we should, for the most part, avoid you know, kind of preaching texts here and there and should go right through particular, particular books. Well, Paul doesn't just tell Timothy randomly for no apparent reason, oh, by the way, Timothy, in case you forgot in the midst of my discussion in this letter, don't forget the scripture is inspired. Now on to the next thing. No, there's a reason he brings it up when he does. And he has a reason, he has a purpose for bringing it up that he's going to apply. And we're going to see that in the opening verses of chapter four. The great Puritan writer Thomas Brooks puts it this way. He says, application is the life of all teaching. In other words, there's no doctrine in the Bible that isn't there for some kind of for lack of a better way of putting it, practical purpose in your life. Everything the Bible teaches, whether it is hard to figure out what that is or not, everything the Bible teaches is there that we might think and believe and live differently in light of it. There is application to every truth in, in Scripture. So Paul, what, what Paul is doing here in bringing up the inspiration of Scripture, he's driving home a point to Timothy in all these things, and what is that point that he's driving him to? It's found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4. This is the point. Why does Paul bring up the fact that all scripture is God-breathed? Well, here it is, verses 1 and 2. He tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And what does he say? Preach the word. And then he adds, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, you might be saying to yourself once again, as maybe, maybe this has happened as we've gone through First and Second Timothy so far a number of times. Maybe you're sitting there and you go, hey, pastor, you know, great, um, but this is counsel for a pastor. Like, you know, what do they tell Jesus? Physician, heal thyself. You know, pastor, preach to yourself. You know, you should be preaching this in the mirror. Um, maybe you're telling yourself, well, I'm never going to be a pastor or a preacher, so why do, why do I have to know this? Why is this in our Bibles? You know, why, why didn't Paul just give this letter to Timothy and have that be his private property 
instead of somehow having it in God's providence included in our Bibles. Well, um, you know, in, in some ways you might be correct in saying that and in saying that this might not have a direct practical application to you. But I think, um, you know, everyone is not called to preach the word of God. Most are not. Maybe you're relieved at that uh, at that notion. Uh, maybe you're, you think it's strange that we preach about preaching because it's in a text about preaching. Um, but that doesn't mean there are no lessons for you. It doesn't mean that just because you're not a pastor and you're never going to be called to preach, perhaps, it doesn't mean there's no application for you as a believer in Christ in this text. You know, you may never be called upon to preach, although someone here might be. We, you, we don't know. You know, maybe you're sitting here, you're a young man, and you say, well, that, that's, that ain't never going to happen. Um, well, uh, I, I would have said when I was 19 or 20, that wasn't never going to happen either. And here we are anyway. So you just don't know what God uh, may see fit to do. But everybody who is a believer in Christ has to have a right view of Scripture. And we have to have a right biblical view of the preaching of God's word. It matters what you think is going on on Sunday morning if the preaching is actually faithful to God's word. It matters what you think of it. It matters what you think is happening when God's word is being proclaimed, if it's being proclaimed faithfully and clearly. I think we need to grasp a few things that we'll try to spend some time this morning on. We need to grasp the necessity of it. People don't like sermons. In fact, you know, if you want to, if you want to kind of uh, talk down about someone's way of speaking, often we say, well, don't be so preachy. Quit preaching at me. Or you're preaching to the choir, like you're wasting my time. And we use the word preaching to describe such a thing. But we need to grasp the necessity of it. Why do we need it? Why has God ordained it? We need to grasp the gravity or the seriousness of it. It's not meant to be flippant or entertaining. God isn't here for our amusement. His word is not given for our amusement. We need to also see, I think, and this might be the most important thing of all, the primacy of it in the Christian life. Uh, a number of, of weeks ago, uh, we had a meeting, and Rob reminded me recently about his, remember his, uh, his diagram he drew? If you were here, it was a circle with a dot in the middle, and it was, where's the church? You know, if that, that circles your life and that dot's the center, where's the church? Is it on the outside somewhere? Is it somewhere on the periphery? We want, in a lot of ways, it, make, that, make that circle the church. Where in the church, as far as the day-to-day, week-to-week, Lord's Day, life of the church, where does preaching fit in in that circle? I think if we were to judge in some ways by how people treat it, it's not in the middle. But in scriptural terms, in a lot of ways, that's where it should be. It doesn't mean it's the only thing, but it does have a central place or should have a central place in many ways in Christian worship and in the Christian life. And if we don't think that way, well, this scripture, I think, is going to renew our minds a little bit, I hope, this morning in that regard. So the first thing we're going to look at this morning that we should notice in this brief text is the necessity of preaching the word of God. After all that Paul tells us about the inspiration of scripture in verses 16 and 17, what's the very first thing he presses upon Timothy as his duty in light of those things? He has to preach the word. If it's God's word, that's, that's all the reason he needs to preach it. If the Bible is the word of God, then it is the duty of every true minister to make that word known. 
to teach the word, to preach the word, and to teach and preach all of it. What does is, what is Paul say in verse 16? All scripture. Not just the easy parts, not just the comfortable parts, not just the parts that we think we understand in, you know, in, in disregarding the other parts that we don't think we get yet. Um, and this implies the, a necessity in more than one sense of the term. First, it is necessary to preach the word because it is the word of God. God's word more than anything else is eminently worthy of being made known to God's people. Shall, shall God speak and his people not listen? You know, if you got a, a letter, and you know, nobody uses letters anymore, email, text, whatever, um, and I, I, I won't get uh, political here, but let's say you got a, a letter from the president, and you could verify that it was really him, it wasn't junk mail, it wasn't a trick. Now, you may or may not have voted for a certain president, but you'd probably read it. I'm guessing you would probably take it rather seriously. But we have word from God, and shall we not make it known? If God has spoken to us in his word, and he has, shall we, who, who are called to preach the gospel, waste time with other things in the pulpit? Shall we waste the people's time and waste God's time and even dishonor God by trying to preach things other than scripture in, in, in the Lord's day in his church? Shall we use worldly wisdom instead because people gravitate to that? Shall we use entertainment, pop psychology, politics, any number of things? Maybe you have been in your years of knowing the Lord, been to many a church where these very things are what is focused on in place of the preaching of the word of God. Because people like it. And they don't often like scripture. No one should dare do such a thing in a church. And yet how many dare to do these exact things? And shall God be mocked if we preach things other than the truth of Scripture? To do that is to be a false prophet. That's not an overstatement. Because when you stand in the pulpit on the Lord's Day, what, what you should be able to say, and really what you're implying whether you say it or not, is thus saith the Lord. Well, thus saith the Lord doesn't fit pop psychology or politics or entertainment. God is not to be treated in a flippant way. Those kinds of things done in the, in the name of preaching are just as much false prophecy as those false prophets you read of in the Old Testament who dared to speak what God had not told them to speak, who said, thus saith the Lord, when God did not say such things. Do you remember what the, what the penalty was for a false prophet? I'm not suggesting we should be picking up rocks and traveling around to local churches, but it was stoning them to death. If they said this is going to happen and it failed to come to pass, what was the penalty? That's how seriously God takes the prophesying or preaching of his word. Because it's life and death in many ways. Men should tremble to enter the pulpit on the Lord's day before the people of God, especially if they're going to say anything that God himself has not said. No man has the authority to say, thus saith the Lord what God has not himself said. If our message isn't truly thus saith the Lord, we should have nothing to say at all. But if God has spoken in his word and, we, and he has, that must be preached. And, and Paul is implying here all of it. There's nothing that, you know, it, it's the temptation always, especially if you preach 
individual text here and there. What do you, what do, you do when that happens? I'll, I'll give you a little inside baseball. You're often tempted to skip things that are uncomfortable, to skip things that are unpopular that people don't want to hear. If you go straight through the books, what happens? You're forced to deal with texts that people may not want to hear, but texts of things that people need to hear. God didn't put anything in his word for no, for no reason. Listen to the words of Paul in the book of Acts, Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. And listen to what he's saying here. He says to the elder, remember he's leaving, he's on his way to prison, basically, or to trial. He's meeting with the Ephesian elders. He tells them at some point, you know, this is the last time you're going to see me. In a, way, in, a, in, a, in a way, it's a lot like this second letter to Timothy. Paul tells him in this next chapter that he's going to die soon. That he's going to, you know, he's fought the fight, he's run the race, and there's laid before him a crown of righteousness that God's going to give him on the last day. Like, I'm not going to be here long, hurry up and get here. Well, he tells the Ephesian elders, he says this, Acts 20, 26 and 27, he says, Therefore I testify, you know, hand up, right? I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's a heck of a way to say it. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I read a Bible verse and my brain sort of translates it in a less um, emphatic way. Like I read that and I go, okay, Paul's just saying, hey, you guys, I told you everything that the Bible teaches that I could in the time I had. And that's true, but that's not what he says, is it? He says it a lot more forcefully than that, doesn't he? He says, I'm innocent of the blood of all. Why? Because he didn't shrink back from declaring to them the whole counsel of God. What's he saying? If he had failed to declare the whole counsel of God, what's he saying? He'd have blood on his hands. It's that serious of, of a matter. He would stand and would have stood guilty before God for the harm done to his hearers, for holding back what God had given for their benefit and for their salvation. And this shows us another aspect of the necessity of the preaching of God's word. God's word must not only be preached because it's God's word, but it also has to be preached in all of it because all of it is needful for us to hear. Anybody ever written a term paper for school, research paper? Uh, Ben's working on one right now for high school. Um, I remember in college, uh, my professors won't ever hear this, I don't think, but you know, we, we were, you have to write a 15-page paper on a certain subject, and you're writing as hard as you can, and you're getting as far as you can, and you ha- end up with 12 pages. And the requirement is 15, or maybe it's 10, and you have 7 pages. What do you do? Don't ever do this. You know, you, you kind of try to add some filler. You know, you, you kind of add things to try to make it, beef it up a little bit. Maybe you make the font a little bit bigger on, on the sly, or, you know, some kind of thing to make it look a little heavier. Well, there's no, there's no filler in the Bible. There's, you know, God wasn't in heaven giving us his word and saying, well, not quite thick enough. I'll just add some more stuff. They don't really need it, but who's, who's to know? I'm God. I'll do what I want. No, it's all God's word. It's all there for a reason. It's all there because we need it, right? And conversely, on the other side of, of, of the coin, whatever's not in there is not necessary for our faith in life. We might be curious about it, we might want to know how many cults have started because that happened. Seems like every other cult known to man starts by picking dates. 
you know, it, it seems like they all kind of fall in that way. People want to know the inside scoop. They want to know what's God going to do and when. And they start going beyond what Scripture has taught. And next thing you know, they're in a cult or they've started a cult. You know, the Bible in Deuteronomy 29:29 says, uh, you know, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. In other words, some stuff God has not seen fit to let us know. Like the date of Christ's return. Like you know, all kinds of things. And then he says, but the, but the things that are revealed are given to us and our children that we might do them forever. God has told us lots of stuff. God has revealed a lot of things, and our job is to be uh, believing and obeying those things and not trying to look into things that are none of our business. That is what the Word of God would tell us. We need the whole counsel of God. That's why Paul has given it to us in all the scriptures. He has not given us his word for nothing. If he has revealed something in his word, it must be needful for us for our faith and life as believers. So let us not neglect to read and study God's word on our own and let us determine uh, to attend upon and support a ministry that faithfully declares the whole counsel of God and no other kind. We, we should not support or attend a ministry that doesn't do that. That doesn't make the whole counsel of God faithfully known. The second thing, not just the necessity of preaching the word of God, but the gravity or the seriousness of preaching the word of God. You know, Paul, Paul doesn't just kind of casually instruct or exhort Timothy here. Oh, by the way, Timothy, you know, it's the word of God. So you know, maybe you might want to preach it. Don't forget to preach the word, you know, everything else. Here's my list of things. And it's somewhere on the list at all. He, look, look at what he says to get in verses 1 and 2. He says, I charge you. I charge you. And then he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And then he says, preach the word. That's a serious way of putting it, isn't it? Not that Timothy would have thought of it in a flippant manner, but uh, Paul wanted to impress upon him how serious this duty of his was. To charge someone as Paul does here is not simply to exhort or even to command, although he could have certainly done that and he does command him here. It is to place someone, and Timothy in this case, under a solemn obligation. This isn't something he can take or leave or decide to do or, or not to do. He's placing Timothy kind of in a weird way. He's kind of placing him under an oath of sorts before God. If he is going to be a minister of the gospel, then he must preach the word of God in its entirety. He cannot and must not do anything less than or other than that. Like It'd be one thing if he was just charged by Paul and was accountable to Paul. He's telling him you're accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ himself for how he handles the scriptures. Timothy himself, any true minister of the gospel in our own day, uh, for us, it must be as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 6. And this is what Paul says. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. Why? For necessity is laid upon me. And then he adds this. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, I don't know. Um, some of you are old enough as I am to remember the old country show Hee Haw. Anybody old enough to remember that show? Kind of silly, silly show, but I used to watch it as a kid. Roy Clark and Buck Owens and all these guys. 
Um, well, I remember they used to, I won't sing it, I won't harm your ears with it, but uh, there was a song they would do, a little skit every once in a while, Doom, Despair, and Agony on Me, Deep, Dark, Depression, Obsessive, Misery, If It Weren't For Bad Luck, I'd Have No Luck At All. I still remember every word of it, right? Um, but they would say, whoa, they'd use the word whoa, if I remember things right. And so as a child, as a kid, I grew up thinking, whoa is, oh, you know, bad, you know, whoa, well, oh, you know. Having a bad day, bad luck, whatever. That's all I thought woe meant. Woe meant was like bummer. That's not what Paul's saying at all, is it? But when Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel, to pronounce a woe, W-O-E, upon someone, is to pronounce a prophetic curse or judgment from God upon them. That's the way the prophets used it in the Old Testament. That's the way Jesus used it in the gospels. Woe to you, uh, Pharisees and scribes, hypocrites. He said it a bunch of times. What's he saying? Judgment was, was due unto them for what they were doing. To, to, to pronounce a woe was to pronounce judgment upon someone. Paul is saying if he didn't preach the gospel, he deserved to be judged and condemned. He deserved the curse of God upon himself if he didn't preach the gospel, that is how grave and serious of an obligation that had been placed upon him. Think about Isaiah chapter 6. Remember Isaiah 6, that great passage where we call it the call of Isaiah, where he has that vision of the Lord, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He saw a vision of the Lord. He didn't see God, but he saw a vision of God that God gave him. And do you remember what his reaction was at first? Remember the, the thresholds of the temple were shaking, and so were his knees. And he said, Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have beheld the Lord. For a prophet to pronounce a woe upon himself means he was pronouncing judgment upon himself. He was saying, oh no, God's holy and I'm not. I, I deserve judgment. That must be what's going to come. Now what happened? Remember the, the tong with the live coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, and the angel touched it on his lips and said, your sin is atoned for. So he wasn't judged. Someone was judged in his place. It was a picture of Christ, his death on the cross in his place. And then what did he say when God said, I'm paraphrasing, I've got a job. He said, here am I, send me. He went from woe is me to send me. But that woe wasn't wrong. If not for that coal from the altar, that woe was what he deserved and would have surely Received. We often mention Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. But what does Paul say in the verses right before that? Romans 1.14 and 15, he says this, I am under obligation, the, the King James says, I am a debtor. I am under obligation or am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in also who are in Rome. Paul didn't have a choice. He's under obligation. He had to preach the gospel. In fact, he says he owed it to them. It wasn't something for him for himself to give or take as he pleased or dispense as he saw fit. It was something he owed to them before God to preach the gospel to him to them. He owed it to God as as well to do that and. And he was not reluctant to do this at all, was he? Paul wasn't saying, well, I guess I have to do this. No, God's, God's making me do this. I guess I have to do it. He said he was eager 
to preach the gospel. Why was Paul eager to preach the gospel? Verse 16. For, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And why wasn't he ashamed of the gospel? Because, for, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. If we believe the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, we won't be ashamed of it. We'll actually be eager to preach the gospel and share the gospel of Christ with others. The charge that Paul gives Timothy to preach the word, but look, look at the way he charges him to do it. If he had just said, I charge you, that would have been enough. But that's not what he says. He char- First of all, uh, he says that he charges him in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And then he says, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Now, we don't have time to cover all this in great detail, but there's at least three things here that he charges him in light of. And I think we need to take these things to heart, uh, at least in some ways. First, we do all that we do, whether Timothy as a pastor or whether the rest of us as believers uh, in Christ, um, in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Everything we do is done in the presence and before the face of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That What's he saying? The fear of God should constrain us. He's pressing upon Timothy the fear of God in what he does, especially in the preaching of God's word. And I think this should be true of every single believer, not just, not just pastors and elders. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, the last verses of the book, I believe, verses 13 and 14, it says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard, you know, all his whole argument in the book has been written out. And what is it? Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? For this is the whole duty of man. To fear God and keep his commandments. Then he says, why? For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Everything we do is before the face of God, and especially the preaching of the word on the Lord's day. God sees and hears all of it. He hears everything that we say. He knows everything we think. He sees everything that we do. And he will bring all these things into judgment and shall we not fear him shall we go on sinning with impunity and as as rob mentioned from the book of revelation not repenting god and the lord jesus christ himself attend every worship service of the church that should change everything every church that calls itself christian in, in a very real sense jesus is at that meeting he may not be pleased by what's going on at the meeting The Lord Jesus Christ hears every sermon as if he's sitting in the front row. I remember our particularization service. He probably will never hear this, so I'll say it. Uh, My old professor, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jones, Peter Jones, we love him uh, dearly. uh, But uh, he always makes me nervous when he's at the church when I'm preaching or if I'm somewhere else and talking up front. Uh, He's a super friendly man, very godly, loving man, but he has this way of kind of, it looks like a scowl on his face, and every time I'm preaching and he's in the room, I'm thinking, oh no, what did I say? Did I say something dumb? Did I say something heretical and not know it? Did I, you know, what did I do wrong? And then afterward he's, oh, good job, you know. Uh, Well, if I'm nervous about Peter Jones sitting in the church, or as Rob said last week, Gary Gary Cass sitting in the church, 
how much more, not that God wants us to be nervous, but how much more awake to things should I be or any preacher be knowing that Jesus is listening to the whole thing? How careful ought we to be in the preaching of the word when Jesus is the one in attendance? That should affect us greatly. That How should we worship God and rejoice with fear and trembling? That's how we should do things in worship. It should not be a flippant a flippant experience. And so for ministers of the gospel, shall we not fear God when standing in the pulpit? If a man fears the Lord as he should, he will faithfully preach God's word and nothing else. The knowledge of the presence of Christ among us, the promise of his return and glory to judge the living and the dead. That's what Paul brings up here. Even the blessed hope of the coming of his kingdom and the gracious rewards that God will give his faithful people. These things should motivate us as Christians, and they should especially motivate those who are called to preach and minister the word of God. Well, the last last thing this morning that we should see in our text, not the only things, but the last thing this morning is the, the primacy or the centrality of the preaching of the word of God. A while back I read a book called The Heart is the Target by a man named Murray Capel, and he writes a what I think is a really good summary of the importance and power of preaching in the church. He says, throughout the long history of the church, nothing has won as many souls, changed as many lives, built up as many saints, and strengthened as many churches as the faithful preaching of God's word. That's a mouthful. Do we, do we think that way? Is that what we think of the preaching of God's word? Is that how you think of preaching? Do you really believe that the preaching of the word of God from Sunday to Sunday is powerful and effective for the conversion of the lost? Or do we imagine that other things that maybe are less quote-unquote preachy are more effective? I challenge you sometime, go find some books on, on evangelism. And you will almost look in vain to see even a chapter on the preaching of the word on Sunday mornings in the church. It's almost an afterthought. It, you, you would almost get the impression that, well, no one ever gets saved hearing the, listening to the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's Day in the church, ever. And yet that's not what the Bible teaches in any way, shape, or form. What about the building up or edification of the saints? Do we view the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's Day as being a powerful and effective means of believers being built up in the faith and equipped for every good work? Or do we hang our hat on far lesser things? Not bad things. In many churches, they seem to hang their hat on small group studies or other kind of programs, counseling, all kinds of things. Not bad things. But sometimes you get the distinct impression they think that that's where the real work is done. That's where people really get built up in the faith and not the preaching. Not the preaching and teaching of God's word. Nothing wrong with programs. Every church has them. Uh, But I think sometimes an undue emphasis on those things might betray a lack of confidence in the power of the preached word of God. We should view the preaching of the word of God as primary in the life of the church. That is the view that we hold to that is espoused in the Westminster Standards. For example, the Shorter Catechism, question 89. Listen to this. You've probably heard this before, but listen to it once again. Question 89, talking about the means of grace and preaching as the means of grace. It says, How is the word made effectual to salvation? How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, and here it is, 
but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Your own private reading and study is good. It, 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 it affirms that in the question, but what does it say? Especially the preaching of the word. And what is, it, what is it saying the preaching of the word is good for? Everything, the convincing and converting of sinners unto Christ and the building up of them throughout their lives through faith unto salvation in holiness and comfort. That's what the preaching of the word of God is intended to do and given for. There's a reason that in Acts 2.42, I feel like I mentioned this verse every other Sunday, one of the things that, that the early church, right at the start on the day of Pentecost, devoted themselves to was the apostles' doctrine. It wasn't the only thing, but all four things it mentions are things that have to do with the gathered church. The fellowship of the saints, the breaking of bread, the prayers, and the, the apostles' doctrine. The Holy Spirit working through the word of God and the preached word is what makes it a means of grace. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes the word of God effectual for convincing and converting sinners. In other words, for their conversion. It's the Holy Spirit that makes the word of God and the preaching and teaching of it effectual for building up believers in holiness and comfort throughout the Christian life through faith all the way to the end. Otherwise, you needed to hear the Bible once. When you first got saved, that's all you needed to hear and that was it. It's not how it works. It's not how it was intended to work. But notice again that the catechism specifies that it was especially the preaching of the word that the Holy Spirit makes useful and effective under the salvation of sinners. Do we think that way when it comes to the preaching of the word of God on the Lord's Day? Do we, or do we think it's just kind of one means among many that God might use in evangelizing the lost, bringing them to repentance and faith and maturity in Christ? If we rightly understood the primacy of preaching and evangelism, I think we'd be, we'd be much more enthusiastic about inviting friends and neighbors and others to join us for church on the Lord's Day. That is, despite what some may say, uh, evangelism. I've known men who were fancied themselves to be uh, very effective evangelists, and I've known them at times to say, literally tell me, Inviting people to church is not evangelism. They said that to me with a straight face. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Nothing wrong with going out and, and bringing the gospel to the people out there. We should be doing that. Paul tells Timothy later on in this chapter, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. But at the same time, inviting someone to church, if at that church they're going to hear the word of God proclaimed, that is evangelism. You, you may tell yourself, maybe you're sitting here and you say, you know, uh, I'm not, I'm, I don't talk too good. You know, I'm, I'm not very good at articulating the gospel. I don't know what to say. I start stuttering and stumbling. I'm afraid I'll misspeak. Well, I think you know more than you think you do. If you knew enough to believe on Christ, you know enough to give the gospel. But, but you can invite them to a place where they hear the word of God being preached. Paul says in Romans 10:17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through what? The word of Christ. And I think Paul is saying there the preached word. And what about the Christian life and sanctification, growing in holiness? According to the Shorter Catechism, the preaching of the word of God takes preeminence there as well. Can you live the Christian life and grow in grace the way that God 
would have you do apart from diligently attending upon the preaching of the word on the Lord's day? No. This is the, the danger of so many in our day, and I know, it's, I know it's probably always been this way, but it feels like it's more this way now, of people that are, it's just private Christianity. It's me, myself, and Jesus. I've got me and my Bible out in the woods somewhere, and that's all I need. I don't need other Christians. I don't need the church. I don't need the Lord's Supper. I don't need the fellowship of the saints. I don't need to pray with other Christians. I'm sufficient to all things. I am a body of Christ unto myself. That's the attitude you get from many who call themselves Christians today. But is that the way it's supposed to work? No. Is that the way it does work? No. By no means. You know, the, the private reading and study of the Bible is certainly necessary. It's certainly helpful. I hope that you are doing these things. I hope that you don't just leave your Bible on the shelf till Sunday. I hope you're reading the Bible on your own, that you are praying on your own and with your families. But that's no substitute for the diligent attendance upon the preaching of God's word. It's a both-and situation, not an either-or. In his commentary on these verses, we're looking at John Calvin says this, Let us remember that the fact that the reading of Scripture is recommended to all does not annul the ministry of pastors so that believers should learn to profit both by reading and hearing, here it is, since God has not ordained either in vain. There's a reason God gave the church. There's a reason God gave the various officers in the church, including the office of pastor and elder. If Paul would so solemnly charge Timothy and all pastors today to preach the word, here's an application for each of us, how diligently ought we to attend upon the preaching of God's word every Lord's day? Private reading and study is certainly necessary and not to be neglected either, but how much more ought we to be careful not to neglect the preaching of God's word on the Lord's day? May the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to revive his church in our land that we might see a new reformation of sorts marked by a recovery of the preaching of God's word, the whole counsel of God, even as it happened back in the 16th century. That's what happened then as well. So that many sinners might be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ and have their lives transformed to the glory of Christ. Amen.